thanks for tuning in. My name is Tom Prater. I live in London and I make up one half of the artist run project called Doggerland. Doggerland takes its name from the low-lying landmass sunken in the North Sea, which up until 6000 BC was a fertile land connecting what is now the UK to mainland Europe. Acting as a metaphor for undercurrent action and community, Doggerland as a project was born out of these conditions of artist-led space-making. It continues to engage in this shifting landscape today through publications, interviews, events and mapping. For the past three years, Doggerland has published small collections of thematic writing on the ideas and topics within artist communities. The publications are freely distributed to artist-run project spaces in the UK and can be purchased online. Our first four publications featured new writing by Daisy Lafarge, Sophie Slay-Johnson, Hannah Gregory, William Kerbeck, Hannah Regal, Lauren Velvick and many others. In March this year, we launched our fifth publication titled On Sociality and Idiocy, which is also the namesake of this radio show. Over the next hour, we have all six authors of the publication reading from their work, so we're going to keep this brief. My Doggerland co-partner, Sammy Playford, is now going to introduce the writers and some of the ideas in the book. Hi, I'm Sammy, uh, currently dialing this in from Bristol, hence the back and forth between us. As Tom mentioned, what you're about to hear are extracts from On Sociality and Idiocy, starting with Rebecca O'Dwyer's piece, With Stupid. You'll then hear Tessa Norton reading from Becoming Baby, Ten Lessons on Stupidity, Boredom, Time and Escape. Maria Blythe reading from Insane Clown Posse. Madeline Stack from Is Three Possible? Did Two Ever Exist? Laura Harris reading from Joy Spots. And finally, Sky Arundhati Thomas reading from her piece Mildred. The musical interludes that you'll hear are some sketches or demos from a project that the artist and musician Lucy Gooch and myself have recently been working on. Um, I'd highly recommend checking out Lucy's own truly stunning work at lucygooch.bandcamp.com. She is amazing. Um, For this project, me and Lucy used some of the material we were compiling during the initial initial research into the publication on sociality and idiocy as a starting point. Um, this included uh, a line from an Eartha Kitt interview with Terry Wogan around audience validation, um, a quote from Bartho Strauss quoted in Byung-Chul Han's book Psychopolitics on Idiocy, um, and a line from Jack Halberstam on the queer potentials to idiocy and forgetting, particularly around the film Dude, Where's My Car? Um, This is the last that you'll hear from me and Tom for the next hour. So we'd just like to say a massive thank you to Montez Press for the invitation and also to the writers featured here for their involvement and participation. It's been a real joy to spend time thinking and living with these amazing writers, beautiful pieces again. Um, We hope you enjoy.
I have a confession to make. For some time now, I have suspected that my mind is essentially empty. Stupidity, it will come as no surprise, is something I think about a lot. Over the years spent writing a PhD, and even now after finally graduating, the sense that I am intellectually wanting has not yet been conclusively put to bed. Granted, stupid is a simplistic and fairly unsophisticated way of describing this sense, often known as imposter syndrome, a term impossible to identify with because of its unfortunate accompanying sense of individual exceptionalism, i.e. the feeling that everyone else has imposter syndrome, whereas I am the real deal, veritable unicorn of the intellectually anxious. Stupid, by contrast, is a term we throw around a lot, but I like to think about what it is at its most basic. What exactly is involved in being stupid? Is it the absence of knowledge or the misuse or squandering of it? Is it possible to be conscious of and even consider one's own stupidity? Or is that, I do hope, a contradiction in terms? Is stupidity something that can be escaped from? Or is it more a permanent condition? Perhaps most importantly, what relation does it bear to criticality? Looking to the OED, I read that stupidity involves behaviour that shows a lack of good sense or judgement, the quality of being stupid or unintelligent. Stupid, in turn, is defined as having or showing a great lack of intelligence or common sense, dazed and unable to think clearly. Sounds familiar. The second of these in particular is one to which I can wholeheartedly subscribe. A lot of the time, I am nothing if not extremely dazed and unable to think clearly. Clarity is always a problem. Forcing thoughts into a linear argument, for example, is something I find increasingly difficult to pull off. Fairly unsurprisingly, this has created problems for academic work. Now, judgment and common sense. Defining stupidity through the denial or absence of these contested terms, it seems to me, means the concept of stupidity is unworkably unstable in turn. The problem is, when I write about art and assume a position, or at least perform one, I am perturbed by its neat convenience. It strikes me as fake somehow, in that, through encapsulation, through differentiating myself from the art or thing in question, I construct my criticality artificially, and so myself, in turn. I become constituted through a series of opinions, always staged in relation to something outside of myself, in itself a kind of opportunistic subjectivity. And without the discerning filter of judgment, the problem is that everything slips in. The opposite of good taste is not bad taste, it is eating everything. For brevity's sake, let's call this state one of stupidity. But really I want to refer to a dearth of criticality, a lack of discernment or a lack of conscious control regarding what kind of information is allowed in and what is kept out. Having an extensive range of opinions to choose from, the resultant anxiety of developing a stable, representative and original position leads to a kind of paralysis to no real opinion at all. Instead, everything and anything goes in, while in the process the idea of critical judgment appears secondary if not superfluous. As someone who writes about contemporary art as in, and is indeed paid to have opinions on it, this is, of course, an uneasy place to be. Paradoxically, it means I feel empty and full at the same time, 
and stupid while all the time fat to bursting with information. Probably this is something particular, but not exclusive to our postmodern digital age, where the decision to ward off information resembles something requiring almost physical heft. To do it, we have to replace convenient digital objects and trajectories with physical ones. We need to physically go elsewhere. Why this sounds exhausting is because it is. Now, it seems, engagement is our de facto state, and if not in a straightforward social sense, then in the marks inscribed by us online, or online's marks on us, either through our own volition or in the absence of it. This makes ideas of novelty and subjective hermeticism appear unwarranted and even futile. The trouble in pinpointing the exact genesis of such and such an idea or such and such a position troubles precise boundaries of the self further still. Here I return again and again to Carol, heroine of Todd Haynes's Safe from 1995, whose plight involves feeling every electrical impulse, every chemical interloper, her physical boundaries broken down to nil through a mysterious ailment named multiple chemical sensitivity. Outside the realm of metaphors, Carol is understandably traumatised. Eventually, she recovers enough to be able to manage it, but only by the act of going elsewhere, distancing herself fully from the modern world. But more and more, I wonder if this state of feeling totally bisected by exterior forces is something to recover from. Whether this glimmer of this distinction, this elsewhere, is even worth looking for at all. Still, this glimmer of possibility, tentative acceptance, does little to subdue its accompanying anxiety. In Zen, they say, if something is boring after two minutes, try it for four. If still boring, try it for eight, sixteen, thirty-two, and so on. Eventually, one discovers that it's not at all, but very interesting. John Cage. Versus, mind you don't get bored at home on your own all day once your partner goes back to work. You'll probably start to miss the office. I should explain. I heard variations of the second sentence a lot when I was pregnant, from medical professionals, from strangers on the bus, and people in between. I had existed as a woman under capitalism for 34 years at this point, so it was hard to imagine why anyone would assume I was not always bored all the time. 
There had been many, many times in my life when I had been so bored that my boredom shimmered and spangled relentlessly like Glenn Branker's The Ascension for months on end. There had been other times when I was so bored I could barely move for the weight of my own boredom. Sometimes I felt horror and fear too alongside the boredom. Yet at the same time bored with that horror and fear, which was still, for some reason, horrific and frightening, even long after it had also become boring. It had not exactly been a walk in the park. In any case, it can't have escaped your attention that in recent years it had been getting worse for everyone. What the strangers meant when they asked me to mind that I didn't get bored was less of a comment on pregnancy or having a kid or even about the monotony of care and love. They were asking for reassurance and for me to assent to the totalising capital realist lie that it is our wage work which, which is freeing and liberating, that our intellectual stimulation comes from what we sell our time for, that there is therefore a moral good to work and that parenthood was bound to be a boredom or a drudgery which I'd need to assert my true self in opposition to. They were just checking in to see if I was still on board with all this, because if that wasn't true, what was? I couldn't help. I'd been frantically pulling at books on the shelves of Capital's grand old house, hoping to find the one that would cause the whole bookcase to swivel around and take me to my escape. There it was. Mind you don't get bored when you are watching wacky races instead of going to work. Mind you don't get bored when you stay up all night reading about the Pendle Witch Trials. Mind you don't get bored when you earn less money. Mind you don't get bored when you reframe your life around love and care. Three. Nothing that has happened to me since has felt as though it was following a useful or correct chronology, so I don't see the harm in rewinding three years. It's hard to understand now, but when this weird thing happened to me in early 2016, there was nothing to read. I've always reached neurotically for theory when faced with any life-changing situation, scrabbled around for some grandstanding that would both unpack my own mess of feelings and also situate it as part of a wider struggle or cause. It's never failed me yet. But when I had a baby, I couldn't find much at all. It compounded the weirdness. A weird thing has happened to me and there is nothing to read. My oddness was undocumented. I'd been rewired without a manual. Where was the philosophy? Where was the art about this weird thing? I felt fobbed off and irrelevant, as though I was embarrassing presence just for asking. There should be a paragraph of redemption here, but I'm afraid I can't provide one. There should be a moment where I felt seen, where we all realised that my rewiring as a parent was interesting or valid or relevant. It never came, and quite right too. It is humbling and levelling to experience banality, to be reminded of the ways in which we are all banal, all basic. I'd recommend it on balance. The poet Rachel Zucker, sometime after the birth of her child, said, I still haven't decided whether I want to be a mother. I know what she means, but perhaps it's better to linger in that indecision. It's just a bit gross to care. How could this thing happen to you and you would still think you mattered? I didn't want to matter. You, not on my own. Even my own existence was not remotely about me anymore. 
I wanted to dissolve and hastily, like a tooth in Coca-Cola. I wanted to bury whoever I'd been before and to cover up her existence. I only wanted to be this new thing, which is to say that I wanted to become an unobtrusive white cube, a wall on which the child could be mounted, or a forest floor in which the child could grow. My own maternity was by far the least interesting thing I could imagine thinking about the whole situation. But other parents kept asking me about motherhood as though it was a new job with appropriate levels of performance management. I didn't really know how to answer. I guess the white feminist industrial complex runs deep. Didn't you just feel more like a kid than a mother, I'd say back to them. When this happened to you, didn't you feel a consuming kinship and understanding with your kid, but much less with other adults in the playground? I just felt like a kid. I was becoming kid. My gaze was a kid's gaze. This is distinct from the mother martyr, another subtrope of the popular conception of motherhood who neglects herself by not stopping for coffee or getting a haircut. The parent's identity is a cyborg identity. An adult fused with a baby is an improved adult, equipped for play. I was a shut-in with limited horizons and I was ready for anything. I was a weepy dropout, an instinctive, emotionally precarious participant in broken and busted up time. And the pastures were finally rewilding, an unhappy and compromised ecosystem becoming replaced with something ancient and strong. I was slippery and immediate, like my son. 10. The trouble was, I felt fine. Did I ever tell you that I'd started talking out loud, but under my breath, to my long-dead grandparents and great-grandparents across time and across continents and languages? I wasn't sure there'd be much help from, from what I know about some of them, but I thought they might like to know how I was getting on. Chronology is a force of conservatism, so everything is better when it breaks. Days and thought processes splinter into a thousand pieces, as though everything is happening at once. You're waking up, cleaning the baby, reading five pages of a book, going for a walk, getting dressed and undressed and going to bed all at once, like a YouTube clip of a firework display fail, where all the fireworks go off in a glorious 90 second burst, set to the misfits, last caress or whatever. A monotony is not the same thing as a cacophony. This was more of a cacophony. Whether or not any of this is a problem depends on whether your circumstances allow you to suspend any expectation of linear time. If you can find a way to trust in it, your days can pass in tired and confused bliss with nothing to separate today from yesterday, except for what you read while you were feeding the baby, or perhaps today was the day he licked you right in the ear. It turns out that you can change more or less every aspect of your life, lose every single thing that you've carried this whole time, and find that you are still there. On the other hand, the sole new element in your life, the child, is something that you know with absolute certainty that if it was ever taken away from you, then you would cease to exist. I would belong only to the past. My walls were rebuilt as something simultaneously stronger and more tender. Every time I looked into the black and yawning abyss, which was admittedly quite often, that abyss seemed to grow stronger and more tender too.
In cherishing madness and inadvertently demanding the performance of it, the patrons of Kingsley Hall reinforced the boundaries between madness and sanity, idiocy and sociality. The same act of othering which oils the wheels of traditional psychiatry. These seemingly opposed projects share an ontological basis in fighting the systems of categorization endorsed by traditional psychiatry, Lang and his sympathizers find themselves using the same distinctions with just as dubious outcomes. Despite an admirable desire to bat for the other side, Kingsley Hall embedded, like the various iterations of the DSM, the tendency towards division and segregation, furthering the separation between the individual and society, self and other. For Ling, compliance is a sickness, and therefore madness must be a form of health. By clinging to this distinction, Ling undoes the possibility for undermining such binaries, and instead instead segregates his followers further by burrowing them away together. Accessing their inner madness in order to overcome the politically sanctioned drive towards sociality, they recreate the same categories which are oppressive to the millions deemed to be outside of or managed by the sane world. They reinforce the key trope which leads to the stigmatisation of severe mental illness, the all-too-common belief that to be mad is to be entirely, holistically antisocial. Amidst the chaos of Kingsley Hall, it seemed to have been forgotten that the cherished state of madness is itself a fragile construct of their enemies' making. Winnicott said that cultural experience is located in the potential space between the individual and the environment. In valorising madness, as with disdaining it, we shut down spaces where creativity might flourish. We transform rich seams into no man's land. Borders, splits and divisions serve various purposes, but by acknowledging their tenuousness, their being and also not being, we might learn to use them more wisely. Rather than wondering whether a person is mad or sane, sick or healthy, included or excluded, what might happen if we instead ask, what do you need? Shantideva, given the opportunity to speak out, though only as a form of punishment, astonished his colleagues by proving his voice worthy of listening to. In doing so, he subverted the power of those who sought to humiliate him. One contemporary heir to Shantideva was the recently deceased American Zen master Bernie Glassman. Under the tutelage of Mr. Yu Hu, American coordinator of Barcelona's Clowns Without Borders, Bernie unearthed a unique clown persona, Bernie the Bubasattva. For Bernie, clowns, fools and courtly jesters, powerless though they may be, have always existed to interrogate power, to undermine or challenge the dogmatic authority of dominant institutions and boundaries. Both practices, Zen and clowning, allow for creative responses which highlight the narrowness of our ideas of power, our habitual notions, rationality and so-called intellect. Bernie, 
like Shantideva, exposes our lack of imagination when faced with the uncomfortable needs of others. As Bernie puts it, So if I'm dealing with a hungry person, I become a hungry person, and I say, what do you want? I don't have to say what I want. Being a hungry person, I know I want some food. Bernie and Shantideva unsettle us because they reveal our complicity in narratives of impermeability, of exclusion and separation. If there is a sickness, it exists not on either side of a boundary, but in the ever-shifting relationships between madness and sanity, the personal and the social, in the liminal spaces between people, between fragments of ourselves. Despite the chaotic reality of Kingsley Hall, the Philadelphia Association continued to engage critically with many of Ling's ideas. The organisation has since set up over 20 community houses offering genuine asylum to those in distress, and two such houses continue to operate in London today. Drugs and alcohol are prohibited in these current iterations, professional therapy is provided, and there is no pressure to relinquish psychiatric medication, though many residents find themselves able to do so. Several of Ling's colleagues and enthusiasts have gone on to train a new generation of critically-minded, socially-informed analysts, including the founder of the Psychosis Therapy Project, Dorothy Bonigal-Katz, which offers a long-term psychotherapy and support in collaboration with Islington and more recently Lambeth and Southwark Mind. Lacanian analyst Darian Leader has documented numerous cases of psychiatric patients experiencing delusions which do not deleteriously impact upon their capacity to live full lives. In a similar spirit, the Hearing Voices Network suggests that rather than diagnosing all who experience auditory hallucinations as psychotic or schizophrenic, we might instead support them to listen carefully to those voices and to explore their meaning. Such radical and humane practices champion the lived experiences of those in distress over the expertise of those who are employed to manage their cases. In doing so, individuals can begin to make sense of their own inner worlds without the potential humiliation of pathologization. Across the globe, networks of psychiatrists, psychotherapists and service users continue to draw upon Ling's earliest ideals, to listen harder, to engage fearlessly with others' worldviews, to take madness seriously and sanely. By continuing to invoke problematic distinctions via a predominantly biomedical approach to madness, we limit the possibilities for developing a more sophisticated and inclusive political culture. We fail to build sustainable movements or spaces that welcome those with mental illness as part of, rather than a problem for, society. We find ourselves playing the games of the state, regardless of our intentions. Later in his life, Ling said that the way we treat one another is the therapy. Wherever we draw lines, close our ears, or fail to acknowledge the ambiguities at play in psychological distress, we open little sweatshops, stitching straitjackets for our friends. 
As a child, I perpetually drew three backwards. Exasperated, my mother told me, do it like you don't think it's supposed to be done. So I learned in reverse. Three is uneasy. What I am interested in is this thing that is being in three, a collaborative threesome, a romantic trio, triangularly entangled in art and life. Two is, we can agree, halfway to three. Envision this triangulation. There's an apparatus that comes between two bodies, two lovers. The apparatus is necessary. It is what allows the encounter to occur. The apparatus translates desire from one body to another, triangulating the relation. There's always something coming between us. The third is a proxy for enabling dialogue between the other two. The third completes the triangle. The third is a void that allows the channel of communication to open. But if the apparatus is somebody else, this document came from a desire to recuperate the lost story of threes, the story of how difficult it is to maintain a group of three. In particular, from conversations dissecting the ways that these groups of three invite or erupt into erotic, romantic, and domestic settings. How collaborations can be hijacked by liberal ideas of what constitutes success because of institutional structures that favor communication as a reciprocal gift economy. Basically, how life spills over into what we now sometimes call work. Triangulation is considered holy because it vibrates. All three factors go bounce, bounce off one another. There is an occluded narrative of finding a different symmetry, one that is asymmetrical. Adding one person triples the number of relations that exist in the same space. You suddenly have three relationships instead of one. It's not economical, so to work in three requires a workaround. It's not an established mode. There is no scaffolding erected around this option. To begin with, a sense of opening. There are certain architectures that allow this opening of the mechanism to happen inside a human body. Being inside a small space that opens into a large space, being above the level of the ground, being in a space that is open to the air, being in a room that is penetrable by whatever is outside, and so on. The third element can open a window, causing the two who had been gazing at one another to look out. A window is not only a metaphor. It is impossible to consider human relationships without a consideration of where they live and sleep. People, disproportionately women, remain in couples because of the economic burden of other modes of living. How much of our romantic arrangements are because of built space? 
How would we arrange our lives if rent was not a factor? This impulse might look like trying to make the environment and the time that you inhabit, particularly itself. You make this space, and by making it, you unmake the scenario that is forced upon you by the world. You own time. There is a violence embedded in uses of the we. We liked it. We hated it. We want you to stay over tonight. We think your contribution to the text lacked nuance. How to imagine an expansive we used in the spirit of the ungendered pronoun, a we that can stand in for everyone rather than seeking to exclude. On someone else's trio, she says, it's hard to see something permanent punctuating something that from the outside looks like passing fluid on the surface, not totally sunk in, or like choppy waters trying to gain the quality of elastic. What three means is the transition from the binary into a spreading form the space before eruption into the world. To be in romantic individual love, but to turn your gaze outward to the world. The third can be the end of that gaze, or just a threshold to pass through, a doorway. In various spiritualities, the triangle is made up of a parent, a child, and that extra thing, something that makes the others vibrate. If you were so inclined, you could name that thing the spirit. What is different about a three as opposed to any other number or configuration? It presents as the midpoint between romantic and communal love. Three constantly vibrates between being a couple and being the whole world offering no safe harbor in either category. But maybe what we want is less categories, less names. Because the supposedly neutral categories of the community and the couple hide their own instability, the three and its ilk, the non-traditional configurations, can be assumed to have been hiding in plain sight. There's a sticking point. It is where individual subjectivity tips into the realm of the multiple.
Touch me and you'll burn, she thinks, blazing on the dance floor. The world presses in around her. Men leer, stand too close. The music channels a kind of sexuality alien to her. But for tonight, it's kindling and she blazes. Staking a claim on this corner of the dance floor, with these few certain friends, she feels joy licking through her veins, basking in each other, a protective support of fiery, adamant friendship. If you dance from midnight to 6am, who would understand? They would, she thinks. This is her joy spot. This is a torch song. This essay concerns how places are inhabited joyfully. That is, how certain places can be transformed by the experience of joyfulness from the general to the particular. These transformations may persist, may become written into the built environment, may change a person's individual orientation to a place, or immediately pass. No matter how transient, however, this essay introduces joy spot as a term to describe these moments when joy spills over and taints the place where we are. The term joy spot is inspired by sociologist Thomas Gearin's notion of truth spots. Gearin introduced the term to refer to places where truth is manufactured or codified. These are the kinds of places that lend credibility to claims about what is true. Labs, universities, etc. Within our built environment, these are the places in which we trust the world is ironed out into facts. It matters that knowledge emerges from the lab and not the dance hall. Gearin gives the example of the oracle at Delphi. This was a site that produced truths which could not emanate from just anywhere else, prophecies whose legitimacy is vouched for by the particular materiality of the site. Delphi also makes apparent the socially particular time-bound contingency of these truth spots. As the culture shifts, so do the places we turn to for certainty, the church, the apothecary. Each society has its regime of truth and its own material form. And a truth spot is, therefore, a specific vector in the symbolic and material culture, which, of course, are never really distinct. Place matters mightily for what people believe to be true. Joyfulness may be triggered by memories, our companions and companion species, our surroundings, our sensations, vicariously, or just come into us unbidden, sudden. Joyfulness can cause a rupture to the symbolic order, if you will, that we live under, as places aren't coded for our joy, blossom under the condition of our happiness, such as the corner of a grotty nightclub or an unremarkable stretch of road. In fact, the very dissonance between the material form of the place and our feelings of joy can sometimes stoke the joyfulness we feel. These experiences, however, still happen in and because of their particular material and symbolic settings, but can only be activated as joy spots through the addition of ourselves. Joy spots, I suggest, are those places where ourselves, our place and our social situation bubble outward and cast a particular time-space joyful. While a joy spot can be counter-hegemonic in that we may inhabit a place as a joy spot defiantly, it can also be uneven. While I may have the privilege of inhabiting a place joyfully, this may not be afforded to my neighbour. Even in supposedly safe spaces, and I'm thinking here particularly of club nights, we often feel ourselves at risk, even when we understand this is not the common experience. As such, joy spots need us to be attentive. As Sigal reminds us, radical happiness is also a contract to care for the collective. For me, the joy spot is an experience bound up with a sense of within. 
both within my body and, often, within the radical support and togetherness of friendship or solidarity. As such, it can often feel defiant, even combative, like I am staking a claim on a time-space regardless of wider structures that push against me. In this way, a joy spot is always caught in the tide of our society, in but not of it. Where truth spots shift in step with the socio-historical, joy spots are subject to the rhythm of our lives, of our nights. I like that joy spot sounds like a clitoris. After all, there are too few colloquialisms for it. That joy spot has wings, you see, or are they roots, with which it reaches within the body, fanning the joy. It is deeply personal, whilst also a site that binds people, which can be activated alone or otherwise. A clitoris is not a universal of women's experience, but perhaps we can learn from it nonetheless. It begins with a single node, its two wings create a kind of embrace that is embodied, but which owes itself outwards. It changes things, releases endorphins. But if you don't know where it is, you might miss it entirely. It'll stay hidden. The curve of a hand softly meets her chin. A faint wrinkle traces down from nose to mouth, where lightly lined lips smile a gentle kind of smile. I wonder about the flap of lace, about the white dress she is wearing, tight at the wrists, about her slim watch so elegant with a thin gap between its leather straps and the spry bend of a C-shaped clasp. I wonder what they mean, the piece of lace, the watch, that she is a woman who values her time, and that she is proud, yes, she wears that on her sleeve. Perhaps she is a seamstress, and this is the dress she wore to her wedding, her best one, worn again for a trip to be photographed, white dress for a white wedding, held in a white church in Bandra with high ceilings and all the Thomases and the Almeidas came on that sunny day and everyone spoke about the dress. She is so talented, our Mildred. Mildred Almeida, her family East Indians from Versailles, fisherfolk, Catholics that prayed to the goddess Mumba of the new name Mumbai, prayers for heavier rain, for thicker waters, they spoke in a dialect of Marathi, Konkani, and Portuguese, and their food was hybrid too, pork curry and spit-roasted fish, and they drank red wine from small clay glasses, tiny, more elegant. Lines form under Mildred's eyes from the talcum powder she has dusted on to look fairer. It folds up against her skin. 
There's something in her style of dress, the lace, the slim watch, and eyebrows picked a thin trace. Hair oiled and patted down to tame its thickness and frizz. The first Indian photographers reproduced colonial aesthetics, and these were images to which generations aspired. This image, however, sits differently to those of that time, where single figures stand in rooms littered with plush rugs, vases, wearing jewelry and fine clothing. But this one is different, this photo of our Mildred. She is not playful, but she is performing. I wonder if it is an album imprint sealed onto paper with whisked white eggs and salt. Mildred married Rock in this dress with the lace collar. Mildred's mother called Rock that black bastard. They didn't get along. A patch across her hairline shines, caught by the flash. I wonder about her body, the one that you cannot see, hovers as she does without one. The body with which I share blood, and I think about its textures, its weight, its history, the way that things grow thick with time, sacrifice and compromise, made by generations so that someone in the future can dif live differently. Not just differently, but better. I think about where the photograph is now, on that blue painted board held up by an eraser, next to a canvas, one that my aunt prepares for a portrait. She's doing a series, Portraits of the Women in Our Family. She wants to redraw their lines with her hand, to trace out their figures with the thickness of her brush, to collapse the space between her and them, between her and her history. For Mildred, water is the base, and she paints out a background. But first, she darkens her skin. It was an ordinary day. The clouds were bleached white by the sun. The smog held up like a curtain over the city. Light scattered on nearby roofs. And I thought, mornings look apocalyptic in the city. I sat at my desk, a view of Bombay in front of me, a bay, a skyline. I live on a street that curves towards a hill, at the end of which lies a sprawling blue roof slum, from which all of the apartments around the block source their domestic staff. Most people would call this a dead end. It is anything but dead, if you ask me. At the foot of the hill is a thick iron gate, opening to a series of lazily laid out steps that lead to a gothic church rebuilt after the Bombay plague of the 1890s. This church, the Mount Mary Church, is home to a small wooden sculpture of the Virgin Mary, first brought over by the Portuguese in the early 1500s. She's probably the oldest resident here in Bandra. She is over 500 years old, and she grants wishes, apparently. A dense network of community makes sure that she continues to survive, and in the early 20th century, she was quietly stowed away in a local fisherman's home during a Maratha invasion. When she first arrived those 500 years ago, after finding her home on the hill, she travelled to the neighbouring islands, Bombay was then still seven disparate islands, where she visited each of their seven goddesses and invited them over to celebrate her birthday and her arrival with her. And although she is the Mother Mary, she is also one of them, 
now the eighth goddess of this perfect natural bay flung to the Arabian Sea. I have just returned from a walk up to the church. I have begun to do this daily, not only to visit sweet Mary in the middle of a typically camp display of plastic flowers, repainted frescoes that have darkened the skin of Jesus and his disciples, but to visit a small plaque, one that brings me closer to her, to Mildred, who since I moved back to Bandra I can't get out of my head. After the plague, rich families in the neighborhood donated funds for the renovation and rebuilding of the church, from an old Portuguese style to a British neo-Gothic, and each pillar has a small plaque with their names inscribed. On the right-hand side of the entrance, in a small cursive print, it says, Almeida. I'm trying to set a scene, trying to find a different way to describe her face, but all I have is shining as pale and light and white as the moon, a hollow lacuna swooping down its center, her tiny nose, dark hair lining her face and moving quickly in the light, slippery just like the moon, the likeness unavoidable. I have been trying to animate her, a scene perhaps, a pictorial clue. I think about how met how much images can help in the absence of real lives, and I struggle to picture her without pictures. The scene. The wind crashes in through the gap in the window. It's the monsoon. Mildred stands in the middle of a room, bathed in deep velvety hues of green and lilac. The clouds are grey and fat, and there is no room for the sun to crawl in.